Well, good afternoon. It's good to be together today. Please take your Bibles and turn to the book of Joel. The book of Joel. We continue our exposition in that book. And before we get started, I just want, by way of encouragement, we've all were, I think, surprised about the uh, Supreme Court ruling that came down, actually both of them, but especially the overturning of Roe versus Wade. And it is a reminder for us that we should not lose heart and praying. For decades, the bride of Christ, tens of millions of Christians have been united in one voice to see this overturned. And at a time when wickedness is being spewed out upon us in, uh, in incredible volume, I, I guess I could say, it was the most unexpected thing. And praise the Lord that it happened. Now, there's more work to be done, right? We want to see it now. It goes to the states, and several states um, have already banned abortion. But the slaughter of innocent life, child sacrifice, is something that God hates. And so let us rejoice with that and be encouraged in our prayers, even as we pray for the salvation of unsaved family members and so forth and so on. And I prayed for Uncle Bill for 20 years. When's the Lord ever going to answer? He'll answer according to his perfect will. So Joel chapter 2, we find ourselves in verses 18 to 27. The title of the message is Restoring the Years that the Locusts Have Eaten. Restoring those years. We, we come to a turning point in Joel. You'll remember when I introduced the book, some actually think that two different authors wrote it and then it was put together. Well, this is that turning point here. Uh, chapter 2 and verse 18. We, we saw in the first section, chapter 1, 1 to 2, 17, that national calamity had happened. There was a devastating locust invasion that led to starvation and um, even the, the ceasing of sacrifices at the temple because there was no grain and there was no wine for the drink offering. And so uh, we see that there. And then there was a call, we saw last week, the, um, to repentance. And God sees and responds to a broken and a repentant people, and he relents. He takes pity on them. He has compassion upon them. And even this verse here in chapter 2 and verse 25, then I will make up for you the years that the locusts have eaten. What a profound statement that is. The promise of restoring years that the locusts have eaten eaten is a fascinating mystery. How does God do that? Does Does he hit the rewind button and give us literally those years again? How do we regain years? How does God restore those years for us? You see, we can restore an old car, right? We can restore even relationships. We can restore an old painting that has become faded and and discolored. They have the technology to restore such a thing. Can restore money that has been lost. But time cannot be restored. You see what's happening here? God is promising the impossible. It's a beautiful thing. Listen to Charles Spurgeon. The fruits of wasted years may yet be yours. And it is a pity that they should have been locust eaten by your folly and negligence. But if they have been so, be not hopeless concerning them. All things are possible with him who believeth. There is even power in which is beyond all things. 
and can work great marvels. Who can make the all-devouring locust restore his prey? No man, by wisdom or by power, can recover what has been utterly destroyed. God alone can do for you what seems impossible. And here is the promise of his grace. I will restore to you the years the locusts have eaten. Well, let's read our text, verses 18 to 27. I have chapter 2. Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and will have pity on his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I'm going to send you grain and new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied in full with them and will never again make you a reproach among the nations. But I will remove the northern army far from you. I will drive it into a parched and desolate land, its vanguard into the eastern sea and its rear guard into the western sea. And the stench will arise and its foul smell will come up, for it has done great things. Verse 21, Do not fear, O land, rejoice and be glad, for the Lord has done great things. Do not fear, beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness have turned green, and the tree has borne fruit, and the fig tree, and the vine has yielded in full. So rejoice, O sons of Zion, and be glad in the Lord your God, for he has given you the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down upon you the rain, the early and the latter rains. The threshing floors will be full of grain, and the vats will overflow with new wine and oil. Then I will make up to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten. The creeping locusts, the stripping locusts, and the gnawing locusts. My great army, which I had sent among you. You will have plenty to eat and be satisfied. Praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. Then my people will never be put to shame. Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God. And there is no other and my people will never be put to shame. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this profound text that is before us. We thank you even for this particular book of the Bible. Lord, we pray that you would give us understanding as we work our way through this book, that we would glean the lessons that are ours for the very people of God in the new covenant era. And we ask this in the precious name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen. Last week, what we saw, chapter 2, uh, begins with this idea, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy mountain, for the day of the Lord is coming, surely it is near. And so there's this past tragedy in chapter 1. Chapter 2 is that there needs to be a deeper, more thorough work of repentance, or worse will be coming your way. And then, of course, in chapter 2 and verse 12, yet even now, declares the Lord, words of incredible comfort, words of uh, joy. Return to me with all of your heart, and with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord. What is he saying? Nothing less than a, a full, a complete, a thorough repentance. That's what was being called for, and that's what the people did. And so, and, and notice it says here that 
that for return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate. That's the motive. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in loving kindness. That's your motive to repent because of the very character of God. So we're going to look at this, our text today, under three points, verses 18 to 20. The removal of the threat, and really the response to the people's repentance. Secondly, the healing of the land and the crops. And then thirdly, a restoration to prosperity. So let's go ahead and look at this first section, the removal of the threat. Really what we have here is the the consequences of the prayer of the priest. Back in verse 17, there was a call to the priest. After the call to repentance, let the priest, as the Lord ministers, weep between the porch and the altar and let them say, spare your people, O Lord. Well, what we have here is a response. God has heard their cry. God has seen their repentance. It's a thorough one. It wasn't an external form where they, where they put on sackcloth and ashes. Or it was in the heart The Lord is restoring his people to the land, not because of any human merit that they've done, but because of God's free grace. Leslie Allen, in his commentary, says, it is implied that the priests and the people took Joel seriously. They duly held a service of lamentation and reached in reality the hypothetical stage of verse 17. At that point, Joel could switch from his role as a diagnosis of judgment to proclamation of salvation. In Yahweh's name, he is empowered to deliver an oracle of salvation. So our text here says that the Lord will be zealous in his land. And, you know, the Lord, one of the attributes of God is that, that he is a jealous God. He's a jealous God for his very people. It's a divine attribute that denotes true, passionate concern and a zealous love for his people. Isaiah 42, verse 13, the Lord will go forth like a warrior. He will arouse his zeal like a man of war. He will utter a shout. Yes, he will raise a war cry. He will prevail against his enemies. So he's jealous. But it also says that he took pity on them. What is pity but compassion? He, he, he felt for the people. We just finished almost three years in the book of Hebrews, and we learn that Christ is a great high priest and that he feels the very thing that we feel. Here we see the Lord having compassion upon his people. We see this in other places, such as Pharaoh's daughter. When this basket comes down the Nile, as she and her her, her maids are, are bathing, and it says there, when she opened it, she saw the child, which is Moses, and behold, the boy was crying, and she had pity on him. Is this one of the Hebrews' children? It's that picture for those of us parents, primarily fathers, but mothers too, when your child has sinned in a very grievous way, and they're hard-hearted, they're lying, they won't won't admit what they did was wrong, and and you have to administer discipline, and and, and that hard-heartedness is there for a season, but finally it softens, and there's a brokenness And I'm so sorry, Daddy, that I did that. I see that that was wrong. I don't want to do that again. And that's when we shepherd their heart and say, guess what? Mom and Dad are sinners too. (laughs) But we own it before God and He forgives us. And you take your child into your arms with loving compassion and reaffirm your love for that child. That's the picture here. That the Lord for His people, because they have repented. 
Or what about Luke 15, the prodigal son, as he's coming back. So he got up and came to the father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran out to him, embraced him, and kissed him. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exalt over you with joy. He will exalt, he will boast over you with joy. That's language that just oozes of love. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. You see in verse 19 that the Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I am going to send you grain, new wine, and oil. That's those three staples will be repeated in verse 24. But it's also, those are the things that back in chapter 1 and verse 10, it says the field is ruined, the land mourns, the grain is ruined, the new wine dries up, fresh oil fails. But here, behold, I'm going to send this among you. You will be satisfied to the full Never again to be a reproach among the nations. Incredible. By the way, the grain, the new wine, and the fresh oil represents the three distinct types of vegetation, the grasses and the bushes, and even the trees. Well, secondly, under this head, God promises compensation of all the previous destruction. Verse 20 presents, uh, the Lord presents himself as, as an ally. He says, I will remove the northern army from you. I will drive it into a parched and desolate land. And so here the Lord is saying that, that I'm the one that's in control of the army and I will remove it from you. And the very idea that it's this northern army, of course, you know, this is speaking of the locusts, but you know, Assyria would be used of God to come and spank Israel and discipline. You see that in around Isaiah 10 or so. Um, and, and the other enemies, Assyria, uh, would come uh, from the north as well. Jeremiah speaks of enemies coming from the north. But this is speaking of the locusts. I will remove them. Notice here, I, I will drive them into the sea. That's an incredible thing. The Lord does this by directing the wind because he's sovereign. Right? The wind blows wherever it will, <laughs> speaking of the Holy Spirit in John 3. But the Lord here sends a wind, strong wind. It's something that only a sovereign God can control. Remember the judgment on the Egyptians, the ten plague, plagues and that locust plague. It says, and the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in the country of Egypt. Just as the Lord sends tens of millions, hundreds of millions of these locusts, wherever he will, he sent every one of them out into the Red Sea, and they were drowned. Not one was left. The foul smell, look at the text here, the, its stench will arise and its foul smell will come up. That's a fascinating thing. And this is because of the putrefaction of millions of bodies of locusts. Uh, when the swarm dies, the decay would, would, would be so prevalent everywhere that it would enter the, the, even the, the water. And so that would lead to pestilence. St. Augustine in his City of God makes reference to this, I think in book three. He says, when Africa 
with a Rome, when sorry, when Africa was a Roman province, it was attacked by an immense number of locusts. They ate literally everything, and then they were drowned in the sea. But then they were thrown onto the coast and were rotting. Even the air was affected, and there was a horrible pestilence of which eight hundred thousand people perished. There's some historical records of when this would happen with the locusts and when they were thrown back on the sea, that they were three to four feet high on the coast of the Red Sea. Well, this is huge. I mean, we have locust things here and there in the U.S., but, but the, these ones that would occur in Palestine and in the Middle East were, were huge. They were devastating. But the Lord says, I will remove them. I will send a wind. They will go away from you. It's as though God says that that though an enemy has done great harm to you, I will do greater good for you. And that's really what jumps from the text, today's text as a whole. Think of the demoniac in Mark 5. He's got a legion of of demons, right? Thousands of demons inside of him. And what does Jesus do? He has compassion on him. Sends them what? Into the swine. And you know what what that communicates? It's not just, I don't like bacon. (laughs) It's not that. I don't like pork. You know, it's not that at all. What it is, is that the love of God, the love of Christ for one sinner is of far more value than 2,000 pigs. It's a remarkable thing to think about. And you think of that demoniac, if if he knew Wesley's hymn, I woke the dungeon Flamed with light, my chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose and went forth and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be? So, verses 18 to 20, removal of the army. Secondly, verses 21 to 24, the healing of the land and the crops. He says here, do not fear, right? Do not fear, but rejoice. And do not fear, O land, rejoice and be glad. And, and what I'm calling this is God's build back better plan, right? Not one that's filled with flaws and, and throws you into debt. This is God's build back better plan. There's a series of calls. It's rhetorical, right? It, it's, look at it. It's kind of odd, isn't it? Do not fear, O land. Really? God's talking to the land? And then, Do not fear beasts of the field in the next verse. And then, of course, it speaks to the people, the sons of Zion. But it's, it's this allegor, it's, it's not allegor, rhetorical calls to the land and the animals and the people of Zion. Uh, Leslie Allen, again, the correspondence expresses the reversal of judgment and teaches that God satisfies his people's need. The assurance that there is no need to be afraid is typical of a divine promise and follows a true cry of lament. The animals there in the next verse, verse 22, the cattle, the oxen, the sheep are all called to lay aside their fears. It's a picture of full fertility. It reverses the damage that was described Back in chapter 1, look at chapter 1 and verse 18. How the beast groaned, the herds of the cattle wander aimlessly because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of the sheep suffer. Verse 20, even the beasts of the field pant for you and the water brooks are dried up. And here they're called to respond. 
So it's like a prophetic hymn of praise uh, being solicited to the land and to the beasts and to the people. And then notice the drought is gone. And so there's a, the promise of rains in verse 23, the early rain and the late rain, that those would also return. And what's the early rain? Early rain is kind of, it's kind of like San Diego, right? Uh, except for we don't plant a bunch of crops, but kind of October-ish, you know, give or take. Uh, October, November, and what does that do? It softens the earth so that the land can be plowed, so that the seed could be plant, uh, planted and, and, and could germinate. The later rains would be kind of March, April. That would be to allow it to, to come to full maturity right before harvest. There had been a famine in the land, and so these, these rains are absolutely important. And that famine was sent because of Judah's sin. Um, the famine, the, with this case, the locust invasion that led to a famine and a drought, the Lord promises to restore. And we see that in other places too, right? Um, think of the book of Ruth. Why did they leave Jerusalem? There? Why did they leave the house of bread? That's what Bethlehem means, the house of bread, because there was no bread. There was a famine in the land. Of course, they come back 10, 12 years later. Think of other times like... Uh, King Ahab and Jezebel during the time of Elijah. Remember, the widows are starving down to the very last meal, right? The very enough for one small little cake. The one widow was. <clears throat> now, there is a marginal note if you look in your Bible or if you have a study Bible here that, that I should make mention of. Um, it says here, For he has given you the early rain for your vindication. There's a marginal note that, believe it or not, that can actually mean teacher of righteousness. It's the same consonants uh, in, in the Hebrew and um, with, with different vowels. And so some think that that's what it means. Some think this is a messianic verse pointing to Christ who would come as the ultimate teacher of righteousness. Now, it's, it's just really not really clear, and there's danger of allegorical interpretations uh, this was popularized from Jerome in the 4th century um, in the Latin Vulgate that made it a, a messianic promise. I think it's speaking of literal rain returning because of the context of the book and all of that. However, Joel could have intentionally and deliberately invoked ambiguity because just as the rains would come and restore the crops, so too. It's, it's pointing towards that, you know, there's a famine for the hearing of the Word of God and so that it would be accompanied by teaching. But we'll just leave it and say that uh, I think it's referring primarily to the rain. We don't want to read too much in the text. Deuteronomy 28 and verse 12, the Lord will open for you his good storehouse, the heavens, and give you rain to your land in its season and bless the work of your hand and you shall lend to many nations, and you shall not borrow. Verse 24, look at this, just abundance. The threshing floors will be full of grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and oil. That's just telling us that God is so abundant in his love. Jesus himself says, you know, I will give you life and that abundantly. It speaks of fullness and overflowing like Psalm 81 and verse 16. But I would feed you with the finest of the wheat and I will give you honey from the rock that will satisfy you. 
There's a great sermon by, I think it's Thomas Wilcox, one of the Puritans, on that very verse. Think of the Westminster Confession, the first question, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We enjoy Him because He showers us with His abundance. Ephesians 3.21, to Him be the glory in the church and to Christ Jesus for all generations, forever and ever. God loves to give abundantly. So now we come to verse 25 to 27, the restoration to prosperity. Verse 24 could probably have been tucked under this heading, but I divided it that way. Um, Verse 25 continues with the promises, but now, look, it comes in the first person. I will make up to you the years that the locusts have eaten. There's a shift from verse 21 to 24. The exhortations are in the second person and referring, referring to the Lord in the third person. Now it's as though God takes the microphone and says, I will restore to you the years. Plural. This locust invasion wasn't just one season. There was years. And oftentimes these lo- when there was this devastation with locusts, it would come in, in one year and immediate the following year, immediate the following year. So it could have been two to four or five years in a row. So this was devastating for the people. And so he says, I will restore to you the years. Here he uses the same terms for the locusts that we saw in chapter one. The, uh, and each translation translates it different. It's, um, I believe, speaking of the four different stages of a locust, not different types, but the creeping locust, the stripping locust, the gnawing locust, and the swarming locust. But notice he says here, my great army, at the end of verse 25, which I sent among you. He's reminding them, using military language, it was your sin that provoked me to send this army to get your attention and to point you and to command you to repent. The prophet is making it very clear that this wasn't a freak accident of which now God comes to pick up the pieces and to give restoration. God sent the devastation in his sovereignty for his purposes that are beyond our mind. Now, where it says, I will make up for you, uh, restore the ESV, uh, it means to pay back. It literally means that. Not that God's a debtor to anyone, right? But, but I will pay back to you these years. Now, how in the world, as I said in my introduction, uh, you know, what does this look like? <laughs> God says he's going to do the impossible. William Cooper hymn, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps on the sea and rides upon the storm. God moves in a mysterious way right? His ways are beyond our finding out. We just sang, you know, you think about all of these years and the locusts and all of our past sins and mistakes and regrets, and you pile them all up. Look at what we just sang. Each strand of sorrow has its place within this tapestry of grace. Each of our lives are a tapestry of grace, right? So, through the trials I will choose to say, your perfect will and your perfect way. We submit to Him who is worthy to be submitted to. 
So, what are the locust-eaten years? Well, these are years that once you recognize it, should lead to praise. Because God has made you who you are through these regrets and sins and mistakes that are many for most of us. Wasted and lost years can never be given back. Just consider with me some of these ways. Fruitless years. Think of a farmer. He's worked so hard, him and his team and his family on the land, and has planted, and, and out, of, out of his control, a severe drought comes, and those later rains never come. And so there's very little harvest. You hear this from time to time in the Midwest. The farmers are going to take a big loss and, and all of that in different parts of the world. What about painful years? Loss of a spouse? Loss of a child? You think of the family from the classical conversations that lost two children who we prayed for on the email list, but two children in a terrible auto accident a couple years ago, and just a week or two ago, another child due to drowning. Those are painful things. Think of our own son um, who, you know, even painful dreams, shattered dreams, we might just call this, eight to ten years from t-ball all the way up and wanting to make baseball his, his profession and suddenly stricken with arthritis and there's a whole year that he misses in high school. You don't just jump back in and pick up from where you were. You lost a year. You've lost those dreams. God has blessed him in so many other ways. He's with us this weekend as well. Financial loss, bad um, investments, a failed business venture, these types of things. How about selfish years? You think of uh, the man who has a loose profession of faith. He's in maybe a larger church. He kind of comes and goes. His commitment is rather level. He's got an external profession, and, but, but he's not saved. And whether it's 10, 15, 20 years, when God finally saves him and truly awakens him, he looks at everyone else serving and he sees with new eyes and he's like, I could have been doing this serving my great king. And so he makes a true profession. But think of those those years where there was no depth, no reality, just external shell. How about the rebellious years that many of us have seen the locusts eat those up? When you're living for your own pleasure, right? That's, that's number one. That's what you want. You're living for your own pleasure and, and, and thinking it would bring you happiness, but really in the end, it just brings pain and regrets. I can testify to that in my own life. As an older teenager and a young adult, those rebellious years were lost years. They're lost forever, but God can restore them in a glorious way. Think of loveless years. Think of lonely years, you know. Uh, all the children are moved out. They moved out of the area. You got the empty nest. Think of the misguided years. If only I would have chose that college versus this college. If only I would have went to college, <laughs> decided not to go to college. Misguided years, these types of things, maybe not necessarily sinful, but just not the best choice at the end of the day. You think of years without Christ. That's the most tragic, isn't it? That's the most tragic. Years without Christ. No one ever regrets, listen to me, young people, no one ever regrets coming to Christ too soon. But they always regret coming to Christ 
too late. Not too late, but later in life, and there's the regrets, the loss that's there. It's a wake-up call for anyone that's not saved. Jesus says, come unto me, all you labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest for your souls. You think of the locust even eaten kind of years, the last two years in our own church, at Grace Bible Church here. And, 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 and what I mean in the sense there that, 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 that God sent that pandemic, it was real, but boy, did things get shaken up, right? Throughout Christendom, throughout certain churches, and several people left for various reasons. We continue to meet. We just continue to try to be the church. May the Lord restore the years that COVID has taken. Listen to Charles Spurgeon. What does God say? I will restore unto you the years that the locust has eaten. Notice this is a divine work. I will restore unto you the years the locusts have eaten. You cannot get them back. Nobody can give, give them back to you. But an omnipotent Jehovah that says, I will restore them to you. Can you believe that? All things are possible with God. Now, what does it look like? He gives back years. We already said it's not, you know, it's not rolling the clock back, right? But what does this look like? I just have a couple of things here. And if you have uh, some, I, you know, I would love to hear uh, your thoughts. First of all, it's a deep mystery. Even King David in Psalm 51, restore to me the what? Joy of my salvation. You go back and you read Psalm 32. Before I confessed my sin, my body was wasting away. I had no energy. I had no joy. And then he confesses his sin, Psalm 51. And he prays, restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Sustain me with a willing spirit. Did God answer that? Yes and amen. You can be sure of it. How about this? A deeper communion with God. Versus years of status quo, but a deeper communion with God. I'm reminded of Luke 7. Jesus is eating with Pharisees, tax collectors, and others. There's a large feast going on there. You might say they're fellowshipping on some level. And here comes this woman that Luke, Luke says uh, she was a sinner. And she comes and she pours this expensive perfume on the feet of her Savior, washes his feet with her hair, love and devotion, far beyond everyone else that's at the table, fellowshipping, right? A deeper communion with God. Listen, this, this is the account. He said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water from my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But she, since the time she came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. A deeper communion with God because of some of the choices that you've made. Those years that the locusts have eaten, that, that now He restores them. And, and you've got a close walk with the Lord. A wholehearted devotion that, that the fair weather follower professing Christian does not know anything of. Or how about this? 
maybe years of, of producing very, very little fruit, um, no fruit, no true fruit, fruit before you come to Christ, but maybe, maybe those first 10 years were kind of dull, just kind of, you know, a little bit show up, leave, you know, and all of that. And, and so, you know, Jesus tells us about the parable of the sower, right? That it falls on good seed and some produce fruit, what, 30, 60, and 100 fold. And maybe you're one that was producing like tenfold. And finally, God blesses you and allows you to be so much more fruitful than you ever have in the past. Moves you up to the 80, 90, 100 fold, as it were. These are some of the ways that I think God can restore these years. Years of regret. You know, He, he, he can restore them in that way. A greater devotion to Him. A greater love. A testimony unto Him. You see, this type of restoration only follows in a genuine, deep-seated repentance of the heart. This kind of fruit can only come after that. And so if you're here today and you haven't repented, today is the day of salvation. Turn to Him. Now, to whom is this promise given? It's It's a people that understand their need for God's mercy and forgiveness. Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also freely give us all things? Give us all things. Everything your heart, your regenerate, loving Jesus heart could ever desire, he satisfies those desires. But it's how did it come? He who did not spare his own son. We were spared because Jesus Christ was not spared. Also, given to those who want God's name to be honored. They care about the reputation of God. They, they, they can't stand before when a lost and dying world curses God and mocks Christ. It should get under your, it should, it should drive you crazy to where you have to speak up. So, restore the years that the locusts have eaten, verses 26, 27, really parallel, uh, just briefly here. You will have plenty to eat and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And notice this repeated phrase, then my people will never be put to shame. And then it goes on, verse 27, thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is no other and my people will never be put to shame. There's this restoration of food to the hungry solely by God's grace. Therefore, the people's response is is not trying to pay him back because this just comes from God's free grace. What does God want? And payback, if you want to call it that. Nothing but praise and adoration and wholehearted devotion to him. As John Piper likes to say, uh, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. He wants us to be satisfied, content with Him. Doxology says, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Right? All people owe Him praise and thanksgiving. And those grievous sins in the second part of Romans 1, it was those who... Do not give thanks unto God. 
It's interesting here to me that there's no mention of the temple and meal offerings being resuming now that there's this, this uh, you know, abundance in the land because that was highlighted in chapter 1 that even the offerings and even worship, as it were, stopped under God's judgment. And so it is interesting that that's not mentioned, um, but I think the focus here is on the people of God, God's great love for them, God's responding to them with blessing in the midst of their repentance. And even though Joel doesn't mention the sin of idolatry, we know that the people of God struggles with that many times. And, and so what does God want? He's concerned about loyalty. He's concerned about worship to Him. So uh, one commentator, Hubbard, says, So good crops, brimming vats, and full stomachs are not an ends of themselves, but they are signs that God, who has seemed to abandon his people to the misery of their disaster and mocking of their enemies, has now intervened on their behalf. And that hence you have this beautiful phrase, my people will never be put to shame. My people, my, my chosen possession will never be put to shame. To shame. So now we finally have the answer that was uh, to the question that was posed in verse 17 at the end of last week. Why should they among the people say, where is their God? In our text today, God has showed up with abundance. Two concluding applications as we wrap up. Are you living in the day of locusts? Here today, if you can hear my voice, are you living in a day of dryness? You feel like you're in a spiritual desert. Do you feel like you've just been crawling along? Do you feel like you're drinking rather than the pure living water that's clean and truly satisfying, that you're drinking from mud puddles less less than, than ideal? You need to lament and repent. Come to Christ. See Him as a wonderful, compassionate Savior. A God that is sovereign over all things and cherishes His people and and will apply, as it were, the rod of reproof, in this case, a drought and a locust invasion, right? To get their attention, to cause them to repent that He might just shower them with more love. We sing this hymn, Glorious Things that Thee Have Spoken, a phrase, Fading is the worldling's pleasure. All his boasted pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. Jesus tells us also, uh, Matthew 6.33, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things. What are all those things? You know, Matthew 6, the second half, where we're toiling about what, what we might wear, what we might eat, and all of that. All of these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God. Secondly, have you tasted the fullness of God? Rejoice in the Lord for His great blessings. What what a contrast to earlier, the call to, to lament and to mourn. He has done wondrous things in our lives, right? Here we are worshiping the living God in person, gathered together as a community of believers Rather than being outside, being a castaway, being running after our own pleasures, 
we realize the most important thing we could do is to worship the living God. And we practice the Lord's Supper here every week. Next week it'll be in the worship service, um, the first Sunday of the month, but we practice it in prayer meeting. And, And even the Lord's Supper is such a beautiful picture of a manifestation of God's presence among us. It's a reminder that God does not wink at sin, right? His son had to die for our sins on the cross. He was our substitute. So when we take the Lord's Supper, it's a reminder that God takes our sin seriously and that praise and worship and adoration and loyalty to him is is in response to the fact that we know that Christ died for our sins. What a reminder it is as we take the bread, as we drink the cup, to be reminded that Christ also died for sins once for all, right? The just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. It's a warning to any who would take it in an unworthy manner, but it's a blessing for those that come with the right heart. Those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage of Scripture. We thank you that many of us can give testimony that indeed you have restored years beyond what we ever thought you could do. We know that this is something that's impossible for man, but all things are possible with you. Indeed, Lord, unite our hearts together as a community of believers. Make us useful in our families, in our workplaces and even in the church of Christ, all to the glory of King Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.